to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the first morning service of Sunday the 25th of February 2018, entitled Opportunity. And the Bible reading is taken from Jeremiah chapter 8. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. I woke up this morning trying to figure out uh, what planet I was on, not just what city I was in. But anyway, uh, I want to say this, guys, as you're turning... Uh, to the passage I've mentioned, Jeremiah chapter 8. It has been a great blessing for me to be able to be here again and just to interact with you and to see what God is doing in each of your lives. And again, I want to encourage you to understand this, that the best days of your life are ahead. God's got great things for you. And again, just to listen to you, to look at your eyes and to understand the anticipation, the expectation that you have in your life of what God's going to do is a thrilling thing to me. And uh, you're a special group, and I don't say that to cause you to be haughty or proud, but I'm just saying it because it's the truth, and I love all of you dearly. And I want you to know that when you depart, make your way back uh, to your typical place of abode, and we make our way back to the United States of America and get back involved in all the aspects of ministry that we have going on there. I want you to know we will not forget you by any means. In fact, I've been posting a lot of things on Facebook. Brother Larry's been posting on Facebook as well. I'm going to continue to do that, talk about what God has done and is doing here. And uh, there'll be people, literally already are, and will continue to be people literally around the United States of America and the world that uh, will be reading these posts and seeing what God is doing here and finding out about how God's working in your life. And they're certainly going to be praying for you uh, in the days ahead as we will as well. Jeremiah, have you found it? So look up at me for a second. Uh, In 1997, I was preaching over in the state of Virginia, and Brian, there was a guy in the church there. In fact, you probably know the guy. You probably met him. His name's Doug Carragher. And Doug was an enlisted man in the United States military at the time. And uh, during that meeting, he walked forward uh, during one of the invitations and said, I feel God's calling me into the ministry, and he yielded to go into the ministry and become a preacher of the gospel. Well, I did not see Doug for 10 years. I was back in the state of Virginia, different city, different church, and I remember I was about 20 minutes into the message when this very tall guy, about six feet, four inches tall, walked in the back door. I recognized it was Doug Carriger immediately. He slipped onto the back row, sat down beside his wife, and at the end of the service, uh, 10 years later, he came up to me and said, Dave, he said, I don't know if you know this or not. don't know if you remember this. He said, I don't even know if you remember me. I said, Doug, I do remember you. He said, but it was 10 years ago this very night that God called me into the ministry and I yielded in a church where you were preaching over in Alexandria, Virginia. And I said, well, I do remember the night you surrendered, but I didn't remember it was 10 years ago. But uh, I said, Doug, it's great to see you. What's going on in your life? He said, well, I'm now the head of a military ministry called Missions to Military. And uh, he said, that's my ministry. I travel literally all over the United States, American parts of the world, ministering to armed service personnel, both men and women that serve in the United States military. So what I'd like to do tomorrow is take you out for breakfast to I hop. Can you do that? I said, sure. He said, well, I'll meet you at your motor coach at 8 o'clock in the morning, which is what he did. We got in his vehicle. We drove over to an IHOP, sat across a table from each other. And uh, before we ordered our food, he started telling me a story that he commenced uh, or, or completed after we ordered our food. 
And the story was this. He said, Dave, before I met you and before you knew me, he said, really before I yielded my life to the Lord, he said, in the early 90s, a man came to me and said this. He said, Doug, I want you to be part of the ground floor, the starting point, kind of the launching pad of a new venture, business venture, that is literally going to take the United States and the world by storm. And my friend Doug said, I'm listening to this guy explain this. And he said, well, what is the business venture? And he said, well, we're going to call it the store without walls. The store without walls. He said, it's going to be a process whereby people, whether it's young people, older people, will never have to actually go to a department store to purchase anything. He said, whether it's diapers to motor oil, all of it will be able to be purchased by sitting at a computer keyboard, pecking the keys of a computer keyboard. You can place your order, what's going to be called online, and then the products will be shipped to you, and you never have to actually go to a brick-and-mortar store to purchase anything. And Doug looked at me and said, Dave, when I heard him explaining this. Now remember, this is the early 90s. He said, I thought, what a lunatic suggestion. He said, what woman does not actually want to go to Costco and actually do her shopping? Uh, any of you ladies enjoy the shopping process? We have a business, I don't know if you have them over here, called Walmart. You ever heard of Walmart? In the United uh, Say it again. Asda, same thing over here. Okay, well, anyway, my wife make, makes a trip to Walmart at least twice a week in the States, and I told her, when I die, just bury me at Walmart. I know you'll come visit me twice a week, all right? But anyway, uh, I thought, you know, my friend said, you know, I can't imagine women not wanting to go to the store to shop. So my friend Doug said this. When this guy offered me this opportunity to be part of this ground floor, this launching pad, new business that's going to be started in America, he said, I turned him down because he said, I thought it'd be a colossal failure. Then he got very serious, and he looked at me and said, Dave, you know, I wish I'd chosen to be a part of that. Because he said, if I had, I wouldn't have to be traveling around the United States raising money for my ministry. He said, I would have been independently wealthy and would be now if I'd chosen to get a part, become a part of that. Because he said, they chose not to call it the store without walls. They chose instead to call it eBay. How many of you know about eBay? And then my friend Doug said, Dave, you know it's one thing to miss a financial opportunity. And he said, I definitely missed one. But he said, it's something else to miss a spiritual opportunity. And you know what? He's right. Now I want you to look at a very familiar verse of Scripture. It's a single verse. By the way, this verse was framed behind a piece of glass hanging on a wall in the house where I grew up as a boy. I walked past it. I saw the three phrases of the verse. They're very simple. I thought, man, I understand what that verse is talking about. I'm just going to be candid with you this morning. I didn't have a clue what that verse was actually referring to. You say, Brother Kistler, what verse is it? It's Jeremiah 8. I want you to let your eyes rest on verse number 20, which says this. Here are the three phrases. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not, would you say the last word of the verse? We are not saved. The word literally, saved, is a Hebrew term that means delivered. We are not delivered. Now, what I want to do for you for just a couple of minutes today is help you understand a little bit about why I am as passionate as I am and why Brian Beaver is as passionate as he is uh, about the gospel and about the ministry and about preaching. Really, Brian, it goes to this verse right here. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. In order for you to understand what the verse is actually talking about, I want you to back up a little bit uh, in the chapter to verse number 15. Verse number 15, and let me kind of set the context because context is important. You remember, we've talked about it a number of times this week, Israel sinned against God. 
Because of their sin, God allowed a foreign invader by the name of Babylon to come down into the land of Israel, conquer the land of Israel, carry through deportations people back to the land of Babylon. And that is what basically has happened when Jeremiah is writing here. He is referring to what has happened because of Israel's sin. In verse number 15, he says this, Jeremiah the weeping prophet, he says, we looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and behold, trouble. Now look up and let me explain. Those that were carried into the captivity in Babylon lived decades in the country of Babylon. During those decades, Brian, of being in the country of Babylon, they prayed many, many times, Lord, let us go home. We want to go back to the home country. And may I say this, I love you guys dearly. I love this country dearly. I love the city of Birmingham dearly. I love everything about British culture. I do, I just do. I love it. I love the history of this country. I love everything about it. I've studied it. I love visiting. And if we have time tomorrow, we're going to try to go again over to Oxford. I don't know if we'll make that or not. But I, but I love that city. I love London. I love everything about this culture. But as much as I love it, can I tell you this? When my plane lands... In in Washington, D.C., late on Friday night, and we get in a car, I will tell you this, as much as I love you and as much as I love this country, my heart will rejoice because I'm home back where I'm most familiar. Are you with me? Can you imagine being in a far country for literally decades and begging God, let us go home, let us go home, let us go home. We want to return to the home country, and for some reason, God doesn't allow that. That is exactly what is being said in verse 15. God, we've been anticipating a time of peace. We've been anticipating a time of health. We've been anticipating being able to go back to the home country. But it seems like, God, all we've continued to get is just trouble on top of trouble on top of trouble. God, why won't you let us go home? home. There is a reason. I want you to look at verse 19 of Jeremiah chapter number 8, where the word of God says this, behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell, here is a reference coming up to the captivity, because of them that dwell in a far country, Babylon. And the next phrase is a question or a statement made by the people of Israel while they're in Babylon. I want you to watch what they said. They said, is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Can I put that in just plain modern day English? The nation of Israel, while they're in captivity in Babylon, begging God to let them go home, they get frustrated and they just look heavenward and they basically say, Lord, you are still up there, aren't you? Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not the king still in Zion. Is he not still on the throne? Basically, they're saying, God, you are still up there, aren't you? And their basic complaint is this, Lord, if you're there, why won't you let us go home? Well, God speaks for the first time in this chapter. And I want you to look at the end of verse 19 because God gives the reason he won't let them go home. Look at the end of verse 19. Why? This is God speaking. Why have they provoked me to anger? with their graven images and strange vanities. Plain English, God is saying this, here's the reason I'm keeping you in captivity because you've not learned your lesson. You're still a nation full of idolatry. And I'm not going to let you go home until you learn to surrender your idols. By the way, we're a people full of idolatry, aren't we? 
Oh, Brother Dave, we don't, we don't have gods overlaid with gold and decorated with beautiful gemstones. No, we, we, we're a little more dignified in the way we have our deities. At least in our country, Brian, we put mercury outboards on the back of our deities in America and we cruise our boats around on Sunday morning on a lake rather than being in the church in the house of God. Can anybody say amen right there? We put big white columns out in front of our idols. Or we put shiny wheels on our idols and we drive them, you know, around on the roadways of our, of our nation and our city. We, we have idols that we put above the Lord. We're really, in many ways, just like the nation of Israel. So God says, look, the reason I'm not letting you go home is because you're still full of idolatry. Now, don't you look at verse 20 again, because the nation of Israel sort of collectively speaks, and they utter these three statements. Now, I want you to watch this. The harvest is past. The summer is ended, and we are not, what's the word again? Which literally means delivered. We're not yet delivered from our captivity in Babylon. Now this is the context of the verse, but it's a powerful statement, young people, on a single word I want to focus on. It goes back to my friend Doug, and that is this, opportunity. Do you know there's three aspects to opportunity? Number one. Do you know opportunity has a seasonal character? You say, Brother Dave, what does that mean? I want you to look at Jeremiah 8 and verse 20 because there's two seasons of the year mentioned. The harvest is past. Harvest was a season of the year. It was basically equivalent to, in this part of the world, our months of March, April, and May. It was the time you planted crops. You raised crops. You harvested crops. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. Basically, the summer months are equivalent to our months of June, July, perhaps in August. Why is those two months referenced by the nation of Israel? It's mentioned for a reason. They're trying to point out our opportunity has a seasonal character. Do you understand there were only two seasons of the year in those days in that nation in that terrain. There were only two seasons of the year conducive for a journey from Babylon back to the land of Israel. See, they didn't have, like we have today, they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles. And if God does, and when God does, and he ultimately did, allow them to go home, but when he allows them to go home, they're not going to do what Brian and I are going to do on Tuesday morning early. They're not going to board a plane that's going to take them from Birmingham, England to Reykjavik, Iceland. They're not going to get on a fast train or a bus or an automobile. When God allows them to go from Babylon back to Israel, they're going to go on foot. And there's only two seasons of the year. Conducive for a trek on foot from Babylon back to Israel. And those two seasons are harvest and summer. But here's the deal. The harvest is past. The summer's over and done. And they've not been delivered yet. So what they're doing is in their mind, they're doing the math. They're thinking it's going to be another nine months, maybe another 12 months, maybe longer than that, until the weather conditions are suitable because the journey in any other time of the year than harvest or summer would be fraught with great difficulty, coldness, and perhaps snow, and all the issues that would make a journey on foot virtually impossible. So they're doing the math. We've missed, we've missed this particular round of opportunity. Do you know the same thing is more true spiritually? 
Brian, I don't put a lot of stock in most statistics I read because they can be manipulated. But I tell you, I have a friend who works in a ministry and has done so for 40 years. And he told me this. And Brian, down through 34 years of evangelistic ministry myself, I've really seen this proven to be true. He said, Dave, in our ministry, and he said, this is not just me that have accumulated these statistics. They've been acquired and accumulated and processed for years. But he said, Dave, the bottom line is this. Do you know that if someone is between the age of 5 years old and the age of 12 years old, that is prime time for people to make spiritual decisions. In fact, he said, here's the statistics. A person between the age of 5 and 12, if they hear the gospel one time, there's a 90%, listen to this, 90% likelihood that a 5-year-old to 12-year-old hearing the gospel one time, 90% likelihood they'll make the decision to receive Christ and get saved. By the way, I don't know how many of you were saved between the ages of 5 and 12, but I'm one of those. I was saved when I was 6 years old. I understood the gospel, and I got saved. 90% likelihood a 5-year-old to 12-year-old hearing the gospel the first time will respond and get saved. Now, stay with me. He said, let's move forward, Dave, 13 to 19. You know what the likelihood that a 13 to 19-year-old, not hearing the gospel once, hearing it repeatedly? You know what the chances are they'll ever respond to the gospel and get saved? I said, no, sir, don't have a clue. He said, listen to me, Dave, it drops to less than 20%. I said, huge drop. He said, yeah. He said, here's the reason. He said, there's a lot of things vying for the attention of the teenagers. A lot of things trying to grab their heart. A lot of things like social media. A lot of things like temptation. A lot of things like climbing the corporate ladder of success. Oftentimes wrong by wrong instead of wrong by wrong. There's a lot of things trying to get the attention of the 13 to 19 year old age group. So he said, Dave, if somebody waits till they get in their teenage years, the likelihood they'll ever get saved drops dramatically. He said, but it gets worse. 20 to 70. He said, you know what the percentage likelihood, somebody between the ages of 20 and 70, not hearing the gospel once, hearing it repeatedly, you know what the chance, the likelihood is they'll get saved? I said, no, sir, I don't have a clue. He said, it drops to less than 15%. 70 or older, less than 5%. I said, man, those statistics are stunning. But they prove something, young people. It proves that now's the time when you're young. There's a season of your life that is far more conducive for you to make important spiritual decisions. And if you've not made the choice to receive Jesus yet, the longer you wait, the more you put it off, the more cluttered your life gets, the more cluttered your mind gets, the more your heart gets pulled away to other things. And if you miss this season, it doesn't mean you can't get saved. It just means the likelihood is less that you will. So opportunity has a seasonal character. And by the way, young people, never... Brian, if you can find it, tell me. I'll apologize to you and everybody else. But never in that Bible have I found that when it comes to a spiritual decision, the Bible even remotely suggests that we wait or we delay. No, when it comes to making spiritual decisions, especially the one to receive Christ, the Bible says now is the time to do that. Do that now. If you're hearing God's voice, don't push Him away. Make the decision now. Are you with me? Why am I passionate? I'll tell you why. Because there's a seasonal character. The people's opportunity. Opportunity has a seasonal character. Number two, I want you to watch this. Look at Jeremiah 8 verse 20. Jeremiah says this. Not only does opportunity have a seasonal character, number two, opportunity has a specific chronology. Now I want you to notice the words that are used because they're important. Look at Jeremiah 8 20 again. The harvest is, would you say the word out loud? Past. 
The summer is, what's the word? Ended. Now watch for a second. For something to pass, it has to start. Are you with me? For something to end, it has to have a beginning point. Are you with me? Harvest and summer, Brian, have a starting point and an ending point. And you know what? Your opportunity spiritually, especially about receiving Jesus, has a starting point and an ending point. Well, Brother Dave, when does my opportunity to get saved start? Can I tell you when it starts? When you understand the gospel and the claims of Jesus on your soul. By the way, I fully understood that when I was six years old. I grew up in a preacher's home. I heard my dad preach from the time I was in my mother's womb. From the time I came into this world, I heard my dad preach. And I heard this thing, you know, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And I thought this, well, you know, yeah, that applies to everybody else, but I'm a preacher's kid. I'm a pretty good guy. But my mom one day said this, Dave, you and your twin brother are both sinners like everybody else. My mom, not a sinner. I've never done anything seriously wrong. She said, let me ask you, have you ever taken a pencil from your brother's school box that didn't belong to you? Well, yes, ma'am. Well, that's called stealing. That's wrong. That's a sin. Have you ever lied or been dishonest to me or your dad? Well, you know, maybe, yeah, I'm just a smile. Well, that's called sin. That's lying. And I begin to realize, Dave Kistler, preacher's son, is a sinner. I was born, Mom said, with a sinful nature. And here's the illustration she used. It's a great one. She said, you know what? A dog does not bark and become a dog. Right? And if you have a dog at home, we have one called Speck. Speck, he's a pointer. You know, he's got specs all over. He's the smartest dog in all. I mean, he's brilliant, Brian. He really is. I'm not kidding. He's very, very smart. He worked his way into our family. He belonged, actually, to our, to our neighbor up the road, and they didn't feed him as much as he wanted, and so he'd come down to our house, and he has this cute face, and he'd look up at Betsy and whine, and my wife has a tender heart, and she'd start feeding Speck. And she said, you know, honey, he's here, and it's cold outside. We need to let Speck in and let him stay in the laundry room. I said, honey, if he ever comes in the house... He'll never leave. Oh, honey, we can't leave him outside. So she brings him in, puts him in the laundry room. Now he runs the place, okay? He does. And we're just his staff, basically, is the way it works. But he's as cute as he can be. Listen, Speck is a little puppy. Didn't root bark and become a dog. You know, sprout legs, arms, tail. No. Dogs don't bark and become dogs. Dogs bark because they are dogs. Are you, are you with me? It's their nature to bark and to do other things as well. Look, we don't sin and become sinners. We Sin because we already are a sinner. Are you with me? We were born, my mom said, you, Dave, you, and your twin brother, were born with a sinful nature. And because you have a nature, a propensity to want to sin, you commit acts of sin. And Jesus came to deal with your sin nature. And unless you get his forgiveness, you'll end up in hell forever. Wow. A six-year-old boy, I got it. And asked Jesus to save me. My opportunity to trust Christ began when I understood the gospel and my need. Well, preacher, when does my chance to get saved end? I'll tell you this, it definitely ends when you die. I'll have time to turn and show you this. But in Luke 16, a rich man died, and the Bible says, and in hell, Luke 16, 19. He died, and in hell. Brian, the Greek language is so powerful. That's why I love words and I love language. Literally, it means this. The rich man died and instantaneously in hell. He lift up his eyes, being, the Bible says, in torments. It means this, already, already being in torments. So the minute he closed his eyes on this side of the doorway called death, he went into the eternal state, opened his eyes, already in torment. And the first word out of his mouth was, have mercy on me. 
Have mercy on me. Do you know it's too late to pray for mercy? When you've stepped through the doorway called death. The time to take care of that is before you die. Are you with me? And the answer he's given is basically this. I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry. It's too late for you. What is fascinating to me is from a mercy prayer, he instantly realizes when it's too late for him, he goes to a missionary prayer. Well, then what about my five brothers? I got five brothers. Would you send someone to testify to them? Literally witness to them is what the word testify means. Lest they also come to this place of torment. That is an amazing phrase. Because I've heard people all my life mock hell. One guy told my dad this. Preacher, what if I do end up in hell? All my buddies are going to be there. We're going to have a party to beat all parties in hell. In fact, he said this. We're going to take up a collection. Have a brass plaque put on the air conditioning unit that we're going to purchase with our collection we take up. And we're going to air condition all of hell. And on that brass plaque, we're going to put Preacher Kistler, he told my dad, your name on it. We're going to air condition hell in your honor. Ha, ha. The guy's name was Jerry Barnes. Guys, he got drunk one night. So drunk he didn't know where he was or fully what he was doing. And he went over to the mantle above his fireplace and lifted a double-barrel shotgun off, opened it up, put two shells in, closed it, walked about 30 yards from the front porch of his house into a barn set up three bales of hay, put the stock of his double-barrel shotgun up on the bales of hay, put both barrels right here underneath his sternum, and reached out with his thumb, inserted it into the trigger mechanism, and pushed both triggers of a loaded double-barrel shotgun and blew a gaping hole in his chest and blew himself into eternity. Brian, that was 1973. You know what that means? That means Jerry Barnes has been in hell. Since 1973. And this is 2018. And he's not laughing anymore. He's not mocking. He had a chance to get saved, and that chance ended when he died. Hope there is no second chance after death. Are you with me? That's why the Bible says now is the time. See, opportunity has a seasonal character. It has a specific chronology. It starts and ends. Your chance to decide what you're going to do with Jesus has a beginning point and an ending point. Now, while all that's true, I want you to see the third thing about opportunity. It has a seasonal character. It has a specific chronology. But if ignored, if you ignore your opportunity, there is a third component. There is always a serious consequence. Opportunity, if ignored, has a serious consequence. You say, preacher, what does that mean? Look again at Jeremiah 8, verse 20. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not, what's the word again? In Israel's case, it means they weren't delivered from their captivity in Babylon. In your case, one of your friend's case, or family member's case, the harvest is passing Summer's about to draw to a close as far as their opportunity, and they're not delivered from their sin. Maybe you aren't delivered from yours. The consequences of that are very serious. There's a significant consequence. Serious consequence. Now stay with me and I'm done. Brian, the year was 1871. By the way, I was thinking about it early this morning. This pulpit is almost, not entirely, but almost 
identical. The one the man I'm about to describe stood behind. In our country, we call him D.L. Moody. Dwight Lyman Moody. Shoe salesman by trade. God called him to preach. Brian, he never had the benefit of much formal training, but the Holy Spirit of God taught him much. Can I hear an amen? And he shook two continents as a preacher of the gospel. In 1871, in the city of Chicago, Moody Memorial Church, Dwight Lyman Moody stood behind his pulpit. He had just preached a sermon on the claims of Jesus on the souls of about 1,700 people sitting in front of him. All of a sudden in the distance, he heard a siren. Not knowing what the siren was warning about, he quickly did this. By the way, I've been at Moody Bible Institute. I took a tour of the college and the church, and I had a tour guide tell me this verbatim. He said this was the exact statement of D.L. Moody when he heard the siren. He said, friends, you have heard of the claims of Jesus on your soul. I implore you to return to this place. One week from now and one week from now, I will tell you how you can receive Jesus as your Savior. And with that, he dismissed 1,700 people. Sent them out into the darkness of the night, not knowing that the siren he heard was a siren signaling an infamous event in our country called the Chicago Fire. Any of you ever heard of it? By the way, I learned about it when I was a little boy in elementary school. We had a teacher taught us a little tune. It goes like this. One autumn night when we were all in bed, oh, Mother Leary took a lantern to her shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, it'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. Have you ever heard that? Everybody in America has heard that. What they don't know is that little tune was talking about the Chicago fire. One autumn night when we were all in bed, oh, Mother Leary took a lantern to her shed. The fire started in the barn attached to the home of a man named Patrick and his wife, Catherine O'Leary. Oh, Mother Leary took a lantern to her shed. It's not known if a cow kicked over the lantern or not, but somehow the lantern got tipped over, and the hay in that barn attached to their home quickly caught fire. The fire jumped over to the house, jumped over to the next house because of the way the houses were close together, and ultimately the fire spread throughout the city of Chicago and consumed hundreds, hundreds of structures and claimed hundreds of lives. What D.L. Moody didn't know is he's sending people out of a church service imploring them to come back one week later. Here's the problem. Some of those people could not come back a week later because they perished in the fire. And by the way, there was no church to return to one week later because the Moody Church was destroyed in the fire. Now, I'm going to word it, Brian, the way the tour guide at Moody Bible Institute worded it. The guy said this, Dave, Dwight Moody never recovered from that night in 1871. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, I'll describe it to you the way Moody described it. Moody later said, I had, as it were, in the palms of my hands, 1,700 souls. And I did not do what I always did. I did not that night give them a chance to call on Jesus. I just sent them away. He never got over that. In fact, according to the tour guide, he said Moody sank into a little bit of depression over it. That was 1871. Stay with me. 
Moody continued pastoring that church till 1899. Upon his death in 1899, Moody Church in Chicago called its second pastor, a man by the name of A.C. Dixon. And A.C. Dixon pastored that historic church from 1899 to 1912. And upon his retirement in 1912, Moody Church in Chicago called their third pastor. Now, this is where your country and the UK enters the picture. They called a young man by the name of John Harper, a Scotsman. He was not a pastor. He was an evangelist like Brother Brian and like myself. And he was passionate about the lost. And the people of Moody Church loved his passion. They loved his preaching. And they had him there as a guest preacher many, many times. But they thought, we will appeal to him, ask him if he will become our pastor. So, Brian, the telegrams were sent. The response was returned from Harper to the Moody Church. Yes. I believe God would have me come and pastor the historic Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. Brian, he accepted the call. Though he accepted the call, and though he purchased a ticket and boarded a ship that would carry him from London to New York, where he was scheduled to catch a train that would take him to Chicago. Though he made all the plans and preparations... He never preached one time behind that pulpit as pastor, not one time. Here's why. Because the ship he boarded in 1912 that was to carry him to America, ironically had the name Titanic written down the side of it. And out in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, the Titanic scraped alongside an iceberg. Do you remember the story? The unsinkable ship. And by the way, the engineers of that ship have been maligned and criticized. But friends, I don't know if you know this, but there has been a submarine made its way to the floor of the Atlantic Ocean, and they've surveyed the damage of the Titanic as it rests on the ocean floor. It was believed when it scraped alongside that iceberg that night, it's believed that the iceberg initially ripped a hole in the hull of the unsinkable ship. Now they know that's not what happened. It didn't rip a hole in the steel at all. What had happened though is this. The builders of the ship in their haste to get it built and get it in the water and get it on its maiden voyage as they overlapped the steel and drove rivets into the overlapped steel to pull the plate plates of steel together. Instead of using solid steel for the rivets, Brian, they mixed the steel that made the rivets with a thing called slag, which makes them much easier to drive in, makes the process of getting the ship built much quicker. But in the process, it also makes those rivets very fragile under frigid temperatures. And that night when the ship scraped alongside the iceberg, it didn't rip a hole in the ship, it popped all the rivets. And the overlap steel opened up. And water began to flood four of the five watertight compartments of the unsinkable ship. And she didn't just sink. She went down in almost record time, just over two hours. John Harper was on board. Eyewitnesses, and by the way, I got the book when I was here back in 1995. It's called Titanic's Last Hero. The Life of John Harper. Anybody ever read it? It's powerful, isn't it? When John Harper, according to eyewitnesses, realized we're going down, he took his daughter who was on board with him. His wife was going to sail over later. 
He had his niece with him as well. The two girls were traveling with John. He put his daughter in a lifeboat, put his niece up, put her in a lifeboat, and as they're lowering the lifeboat, he leaned over, kissed both of the girls, and watched them lower the lifeboat. And when they got the lifeboat in the water and rode it a safe distance from the sinking ship, eyewitnesses said he waved to the girls and said this, Girls, I'll see you on the other side. Not talking about America. Talking about heaven. And when the rowboat was rowed safe distance from the sinking ship, John Harper turned his attention from the girls to the sloping deck of the Titanic, and they said he did this. He cupped his hands and began to scream into the night sky, All women, all children, and all unsaved, quickly get into the lifeboats. Women, children, but especially if you're unsaved, get into the lifeboats. And he continued screaming that to the pitch of the ship. Almost went vertical. Any of you seen any of the Titanic movies? Wow, they're powerful. The last one they did with Leonardo DiCaprio is about the best depiction from what I've read happened. Boy, they got it right. As the ship begins to sink, the back of the ship comes out of the ocean water. And then there's a tremendous explosion. At least everybody thinks it's an explosion. It's really not an explosion at all. It's the hull breaking in half under the enormous pressure. And John Harper realized when this baby sinks... If I don't get off, when she sinks, the suction of the ship going under will draw me and everybody in close proximity under the water, and I'll not survive. So wearing only a life vest, he hurls his body into the icy waters of the North Atlantic, swims like crazy to get away from the sinking Titanic. He's now floating, guys, among lifeboats, some of which are only half full. People offer to pull him in. He declines every offer. He's there for a different reason. Brian floating among the lifeboats, he looks at the occupants of the lifeboats and he says this, can I tell you folks how you know you're going to heaven? Can I tell you how you know that Jesus is your Savior? And for 20 minutes, Brian, he does that. Eyewitnesses said something pushed him. And if you know anything about that night, you know that one of the reasons they didn't see the iceberg is because the water was so still. They didn't see any waves kicking off the iceberg. It was almost like glass. It was so placid that night. So it wasn't wind, it wasn't waves that pushed John Harper to the left. It had to be God, Brian. Something pushed him to the left. And I'm going to use use my illustration. Into the presence of a young man who's tenaciously clinging to a piece of timber from the sinking ship. And John Harper looks at the young man and said, Young man, can I tell you how you can know you're going to heaven? And unbelievably, the young man said, Not interested. Not interested. And eyewitnesses said, Harper said, Young man, if you don't think you need Jesus. He took his life vest off. And he said, you need my life vest way more than I do. And he gave his life jacket away. Swam over here to another group of lifeboats and said, can I tell you folks how you can know you're going to heaven? Another 20 minutes, perhaps, eyewitnesses said, passed, which is a miracle in and of itself. The frigid temperatures, he should have gone into shock, but God kept him alive. Something, Brian, pushes him to the left again. It's been 40 minutes he's been floating in the water, witnessing for his Savior. Eyewitnesses said now he's in the presence of the young man that 20 minutes earlier he'd given his life vest to, but he didn't recognize him. Shock is beginning to set in. So thinking he's talking to the young man for the first time, he says, young man, can I tell you how you can know Jesus? And realizing he's getting a second opportunity. The young man said, I think I'll listen. 
The last act John Harper performed was giving the gospel to that young man and leading him to Jesus. Can I hear an amen? Eyewitnesses said, when he got done leading the young man to Christ, his arms are almost frozen to his side. And to keep his head above the water, he's just moving his hands and realizing I'm not going to make it. He said John Harper just tipped his head back and stopped struggling. And one last statement, he screamed into the night sky before he sank. These were his words. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And under he went, never to resurface. Wow. Guys, listen to me. We are not on a boat this morning. We're in a building. And the fact we're in a building is deceptive. I'm safe. I'm fine. I've got plenty of time to think about my eternal future. You don't know that. You do not know that. Stranger things have happened, Brian, than in a service just like this on the second row. A man passed out. And his head, because there wasn't padding on those seats, it was a pew. His head hit the pew, and everybody in the room heard it, and people rushed to try to help him. They got him conscious again, and thank God he didn't die. But that man passed, passed out and could have died. Stranger situations than that have happened where people have died. Young people, what I'm trying to tell you is this. Opportunity is passing. You know how the Greek people pictured opportunity? They pictured opportunity as a naked runner. Brian, he had a huge shock of hair coming out of his forehead the way the Greeks pictured him. Nothing in the back. And he was running by, and the reason they pictured him that way is this. They said, as opportunity passes, you better reach out and grab him while you can, because once he's passed, there's nothing to lay hold of. An opportunity is passing in front of you today. When you leave here, young men, young ladies, the opportunity of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, their chance to get saved may come to an end sooner rather than later. we got to do something about it. That's why I'm so passionate about reaching this year the city of Washington, D.C. I don't know how long we're going to have until our opportunity comes to an end. Father, would you speak to us today? Lord, help us especially to understand these three aspects of opportunity. It's seasonal character. It's specific chronology. If we ignore an opportunity, the serious consequence that will follow. Lord, if there's a man, woman, young person in this room, I pray, that does not know you as Savior, I would ask, Lord, that today you would so speak to them that they wouldn't push away another opportunity to receive you, but, Lord, instead... I pray they'd do the most important thing they'll ever do in life, and that is make a choice, a decision, Jesus, to receive you while they still have the opportunity to do so. Now, folks, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I want to ask a question that is by far and away the most important question that you will ever hear. And I'm imploring you, I'm begging you to answer it honestly. Sir, do you know? Ma'am, do you know?
Young man, young lady, do you know that if by some strange circumstance your life were to come to an end today, and it could, we are not guaranteed another hour. Guys, to be honest with you, I feel great. I feel healthy. I don't know of anything that's wrong with me. But there could be, unbeknownst to me, inside my body the same thing that killed my father at 56 years old. Two years younger than I am. My father had a blood clot that moved through his circulatory system into his lungs, turned sideways, blocked all blood flow. It's called a saddle embolism. It's a massive blood clot. And my dad died like that. In fact, he was eating breakfast when the blood clot turned sideways. And they had to extract bacon and egg out of the back of my dad's throat. He had chewed it, died before he had a chance to swallow it. That quick. He didn't know he had a problem. Thankfully, my dad knew the Lord. Now, I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just trying to be honest. We're not guaranteed another hour. Do you know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Do you know that? Well, Dave, I'm pretty sure. I'm not asking pretty sure. Well, Dave, I'm, I think, I'm not asking do you think you are. I'm asking do you know that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? If you can say, yes, Dave, I know that, would you lift your hand and hold it as high as you can? Dave, I know if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I know I would. I know I would. If I died today, I know I'd go to heaven. I don't have a doubt about it. I know I would. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Bless your heart. I want to ask a second question. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, here's the deal. I couldn't raise my hand to the first question. I don't know that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. I don't know that. But I'm concerned about it, and I'm glad you are because you need to be. Dave, I'm concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity, and I'm concerned enough that I'd like you to pray for me. Friend, I'd love nothing more than to have the privilege of praying for you, not by name, of course. Even if I know your name, I'd never call it out and embarrass you. I would never do that. But I sure would like to have the privilege of praying for you. Is there anyone in the room, Dave, I'm not sure if I died today, I'd go to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. I'm concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity, and I'd like you to pray for me. Is there anyone like that? And you'd lift your hand right now while I'm looking. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God bless you. You may put it down. Thank you so much. God bless you. Wow, I'm going to pray for you in just a second. Are there any others? Dave, include me. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. If I died today, I'd go to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. Father, I do pray for these that lifted their hand. Lord, I thank you for their concern for their own, their own eternal future. Lord, help them to understand they need to be concerned, and I'm praying that today, Lord, while you're speaking to them May they understand you're speaking because you're giving them an opportunity. May they not push you away. But instead of doing that, Lord, may they make the most important decision they'll ever make. May they choose, Lord Jesus, to receive you and get their eternal destiny forever settled. And Father, I'll thank you for what you're going to do. Now, folks, I want you just to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a couple minutes longer. I'm going to ask... Brother Brian to step to the back of the auditorium. He's going to have his head bowed as he stands at the back. And I'm not trying to make anyone do something that you don't want to do. I couldn't do that anyway. But I do have to give you an opportunity to receive Christ. 
If you lifted your hand and said, Dave, pray for me. I'm not sure if I died today, I'd go to heaven. Brother Brian is standing at the very back. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I appreciate everyone's cooperation. If you were one of those that lifted your hand, or maybe you didn't lift your hand, but you're not sure you're going to heaven, I just want to give you an opportunity. I'm not trying to coerce you. not trying to twist your arm. I'm not. I, I couldn't make you do this. I just want to give you an opportunity to choose something for yourself. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, and you're concerned enough about that to go one step further than just lifting a hand and letting me pray, which I greatly appreciate you giving me the privilege to do, could I ask you, would you be willing just to step to the back where Brother Brian is standing? Just walk to him and say, I'd like to know I'm going to heaven. He'll take a Bible. Put someone with you that will take a Bible and show you how you can know Jesus is your Savior. Would you be willing to do that? While you're thinking, one final thing I want to say. This conference will draw to a close in just a few hours. When you get home, young people, understand there are people all around you that need Jesus. Now's the time to share Christ with them. Not later. Now. Be courageous. Be bold. Be loving. But be deliberate in your efforts to share Jesus with people. Your interaction with them could be the final opportunity they have. Father, I pray for the young people here, Lord, how we've grown to love them. I thank you, Lord, for the gifting and the abilities you've given them. I thank you for allowing them and us to live at this strategic moment. Lord, we're here by design, not by accident. And we're alive in the year 2018 on purpose, your purpose. Help us not to miss it. Help us to seize the opportunities that are before us before they pass and we lose them forever. And help us to speak up, speak out, and do so courageously and boldly with the gospel. I pray for some in this room, Lord, who still are not 100% sure about where they're going to spend eternity. Father, may they not leave these premises without speaking either to me, Brother Brian, Pastor Larry, someone they have confidence in, may they understand we'd love nothing more than to take a few moments and introduce them to you, the one who can forgive their sins, save their soul, become the best friend they've ever had. And Father, we'll thank you for what you do. We ask all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory alone.